So friends, I have the privilege of, um, of taking us through our second week this morning. And we're in our second week of our series, which, we, which is called Encountering Jesus. And we're looking at, these, at the importance, we're looking at the need, we're looking at the longing for us to intimately encounter Christ. And through looking at some of the encounters of the Gospels, we'll be able to see what it means to encounter Christ and the ways that He is inviting us and wanting us to encounter Him by the power of His Holy Spirit. And so can I just, I want to invite you now to just take a moment, get yourself comfortable, because I really believe, friends, what God has laid on my heart is something for all of us. There's, there's something for all of us to take away from this message this morning. And it's not because of the person who's preaching it, but because it, I believe it's the message. It's the gospel, right? And there's always something in us. Uh, for, there's always something for us when we take something from the gospel. And so that's what it's about this morning. And so last week, if you weren't here, Mark spoke about what it means to be born again. Looking at those words, what does it mean to be born again and encounter Jesus? And we not only learned a lot about root canals, come on, on, but we were also reminded of the transformation that occurs when we encounter Jesus by the power of His Holy Spirit. And so this morning, our title for this series is The Ambitious Disciple which I have translated to how to be the GOAT, the G-O-A-T, the greatest of all time. And we're going to look at the blueprint that Jesus gives to his disciples to be the best, to be the greatest, to be the G-O-A-T. But before we dive into this message, I know we've prayed, but can I ask you to bow your heads, close your eyes, and pray with me again? Awesome. So, Heavenly Father, we ask you to speak to us as we look at your word together. We thank you, Lord, that we have the privilege of opening up your word, of reading it and receiving it and taking action from it. And Lord, I pray, we pray, that we won't walk out of here the same, that we'll walk out of here with the revelation of your love, of your faithfulness, and of your calling on our lives to be disciples for you in our spheres of influence. In Jesus' name, amen. So speaking of being the goat, how many of us want to be good at something, right? We all want to be good at something. It might be you want to be a good parent, or maybe you want to be good at maths, or maybe you want to be a good leader, or maybe you want to be good at some sport, or maybe you want to be good at Minecraft, a, a, a computer game. I had to Google that to work out what that was, but I, I realized that it's a good game and it's a popular one at the moment. Maybe you want to be good at something. We all want to be good at something. But here's the thing. What does it mean to be good? What does it mean to be the greatest? And I can remember back to a time when I was working hard to be good at something. To a time when I was playing rugby in South Africa, and the coaches of the team I was with at the time would link the junior players with a senior player or two. And I had the privilege at the time to be linked with a player or two players. One was by the name of Bobby Skinstat, and another one was by the name of Jacques Burtis. And Bobby, for those of you who know rugby, he had retired and then he came back to play. He played for Western Province, a team in Cape Town. Then he came to play with us at the Sharks for, for a couple seasons. And I was linked up with these two incredible players, which was a dream come true for me. Because Bobby had captained the Springboks for many, many years. And then Jacques Burtis at the time was one of the most capped rugby players for the team that we were playing with at that time. And so it was an absolute privilege to be partnered with these two guys. And it was Jacques, who, who will come up on the screen behind me, who was so inspiring when it came to ambition. He was a man of God. 
He was a follower of Jesus, and he, was, and he always balanced being a professional rugby player tempted by fame and fortune with be, being a Jesus follower. He just had that balance right. His testimony was squeaky clean, and he had utmost respect. He had utmost respect from the team, from the rest of the team, because of it. And I remember this moment during the week before a game. I said, I said, Jockey, we were at nickname basis by that stage. I said, How do you balance being the best player in your position, crunching guys on the field, and serving Christ at the same time? I just said to him, How does that, how does that all fit together? And his response has always stuck with me. I can't remember the exact words, but it was something along the lines of, Kelf, God has given me the gifts to serve him before anything else. That is my priority, to serve him and to serve others. That is who I am, and rugby is what I do. Serving God is who I am, and rugby is what I do. He then went on to say, I know what it takes to be the best in my position as a rugby player. But before anything to do with rugby, I know I need to put in the time to encounter my Father in heaven. Why? Because He promotes me, and this is for His glory, not mine. The minute I swap those two around, rugby and serving Jesus, I I become selfish, and I want it all for my own glory. And He said, Calvin, you two are a Jesus follower. I said, yes, absolutely. And He looked at me and said, well, if you are spending time with Jesus and encountering Him daily, a natural outcome of that will be that you will love and that you will serve. Because that is not what we do. That is who we are. Rugby, smashing guys on the field, is what we do. Serving them and loving them is what we are. Now, please hear me. I'm not condoning violence. I'm co- condoning rugby union, which is the game played in heaven, not rugby league and not AFL. <laughs> it's the gospel. <laughs> I wish the Springboks won last night because then that would be, but yes, Aussie won, well done. <laughs> yes. So Jacques taught me something so profound that day about position and about ambition. He showed me how Jesus turned what the world says it takes to be the greatest upside down. To be the greatest in the kingdom is, in, is to inverse the pyramid of power. It's so contradictory to what the world says is power or what the world says it takes to be the G-O-A-T. And to illustrate that, I wanted to see what Google said it took to be the greatest. And it was clear that it was a popular question according to Google. And so this is what Google or the world says it takes to be the greatest. Talent and an enormous ego. To act like you're the best. Don't copy other people. Make them copy you. Pretend you've already been successful. Only hang out with people who are the greatest at what they do. Become obsessed with being the best. If people are holding you back, cut them out. Self-promotion is a skill and you need to get good at it. I don't know about you, but I get uncomfortable and I get tired just thinking about doing some of those things. And that is what the world is saying it takes to be the greatest. And it's pretty obvious that when reading those headlines, when looking at those headlines, that we are living in a self-promoting, a self-centered, and a self-orientated culture. But like Jacques taught me and what Jesus teaches his disciples, his followers, that to follow him, we don't pro- promote ourselves. First, we must deny ourselves. Then we pick up our cross. And Jesus says, if you want to be great, you don't self-promote, but he says, the greatest among you will be your servant. That right there, friends, is the foundation of Jesus' blueprint for being the greatest. 
where the greatest among us will be your servant. And following on from that foundation of the blueprints of being the greatest, when we look at the, t- the life of Jesus, who was the epitome of love, of servanthood, of leadership, I notice three actions from Scripture that become something that we do naturally as we encounter Jesus. And so for the rest of our time together, I want to look at these three actions. I want to look at these three actions together, um, accompanied with Scripture. And I hope that these action, actions will inspire us to want to encounter Christ and to go out there and serve Him well. And I really want to emphasize that these three actions are things that we will do naturally as we come to encounter Christ. Things that we should do as we come to encounter Christ. These aren't points to remember. These are actions for us to do. And so the first action is to be like a child. We see in Luke 9, 46 to 48, then his disciples began arguing about which of them was the greatest. But Jesus knew their thoughts, so he brought a little child to their side. And then he says to them, anyone who welcomes a little child like this on my behalf welcomes me. And anyone who welcomes me also welcomes my Father who sent me. Whoever is the least among you is the greatest. In other Gospels, it says, Jesus says, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. See, the world says that we need to strive to be the best or the greatest. Have the best car. Be the, be the strongest. Have the best title. The best family. The best grade. Be the smartest. Be the best version of ourselves. It's this constant race and pressure to be the best or have the best. And it's sad with how adults compete today to be the best, even Christians. We may not argue or be as blunt as the disciples were arguing of who is the greatest, but there's this undertone, this undertone of thriving to be the best at blank, whatever it might be, be the best at something. The enemy, through his manipulation and mission to rob, kill, and destroy, has done everything that he can for the world to think that being the greatest has to do with prestige, privilege, power, and success. Everything that a child doesn't care about, which is just one of the reasons Jesus says, be like a child. See, God's kingdom, which is inverse to the one that we live in, says it's not about prestige, privilege, and power, but rather about being like a child. So does that mean sacrificing ambition? I'm glad you asked, and we'll look at that later. But I love how Jesus comes and he breaks up this argument between the disciples as they're going back and forth on who is the greatest. And, he's not only, and he not only tells them, but he shows them what it is to be the greatest in the kingdom. He says, be like this child and receive me by faith and you will be the greatest. Let's just step back for a second here. Here we have the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Creator, the Sustainer, the Finisher, the Greatest, telling us in order to be the greatest, we need to be like a child. The children I know are weak in strength, lack maturity and knowledge, and are dependent on someone. And this is what Jesus says is the greatest. I'm sorry, does Jesus know what the world is like? Yes. Yes, He does, friends. And I believe what Jesus is actually doing here is he is challenging the idea of greatness in our world. Jesus shows us that it isn't about being great. And this is where we go wrong. Why? Because the greatness that we know of and understand is is temporary. And not only is it temporary, but it is self-promoting and it is destructive. 
And I believe Jesus is saying, become like a child. Not that we become immature and act childish in a traditional sense, but that we accept things in simplicity. Children have a way of believing everything you say and, 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 be, and believing it as fact. And it's not only when we grow up that we, that we tend to question everything. And the currency of the kingdom of heaven is faith. It's what moves God's heart, and it's what's required to follow Jesus. Hebrews 11 verse 1 says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. And I believe Jesus is wanting us to take the humility of children. It's a beautiful thing to watch the humility of a child. Watching Palmer, our three-year-old, learn, trust, and discover things that is, is absolutely beautiful. It's not always the case. We have our moments. But it's a privilege having her trust us and love us. So are we trusting and are we living for God the way that a child does with their parents? And my second action to being the greatest in the kingdom of God is to pick up our cross. Matthew 16, 24 says, And Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. So to be a follower of Jesus, we need to pick up our cross. What does Jesus mean by that? Many people interpret cross as a burden. Maybe it's a burden that we must carry. Maybe a strained relationship or a thankless job or a physical illness. But friends, I do not believe that Jesus means a burden when he says pick up your cross. When Jesus carried his cross to be crucified, no one was thinking of the cross as, a symbolic, as symbolic of a burden to carry. It was worse. Back then, the cross meant one thing and one thing only, and that was death. And death by the most painful and humiliating means ever. 2,000 years later, Christians view the cross as a cherished symbol of atonement, of forgiveness, grace, and love, knowing and understanding what Jesus did for us on the cross. Knowing what he did for them, for us, for you. So therefore, take up your cross and follow me means being willing to die in order to follow Jesus. And that's big. Friends, are we willing to die to follow Jesus? When I was preparing this message, I just happened to think about this beautiful auditorium that we sit in, these comfortable chairs, this incredible city, this amazing country, and asking that question, are we willing to die to follow Jesus? I reckon if we ask that question sitting in a third world country where we're fighting for our life, where there's bombs falling around us, where we threatened if we say that we're a Christian, threatened for our life if we say that we're a Christian, the countries that we hear about when we're speaking about open doors. Imagine asking them that question. I felt it would just be such a different, such a different weight to that question, are you willing to die for Jesus? Because that, that person's thinking about, I could walk out there right now, someone could put a gun to my head and say, are you willing to, are you willing to die for Jesus? Friends, we're really blessed that that's, we're in a different circumstance here in this city. But that's the question. And so for us, maybe it can be, are we, are we willing to die to ourselves right now? It's a call to absolute surrender. And Jesus said, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self? Although the call is tough, friends, the reward is matchless. See, human nature wants to indulge self, not deny self. And Jesus knew what it would take to follow him in a world that puts ourselves and other things at the center. But Jesus says, put me at the center. 
Bring all those things to me. And we know this isn't easy, but we don't need to do it in our own strength as we have the power of the Holy Spirit living in us to give us the strength to pick up our cross and follow Jesus. And something I really felt to address here is that question around ambition. If Jesus is asking us to deny ourselves, does that mean deny ourselves of things like ambition? And I would say yes. I'm just kidding. I would say absolutely not, friends. God's not wanting us to lay down our ambition. My friend Jacques wanted to be the best player in his position, but he was very clear that it wasn't for his glory, but it was for God's glory. Jacques knew God had given him the gifts and the favor to perform at the level that he performed at. And I think that is the key, knowing where it comes from. To God, the motives behind our ambition matter. You see, the world tells us that ambition is essential to accumulating wealth, fame, and glory for ourselves. It is the way we make a name for ourselves. It's the way we prove to the world and ourselves that we are important, valuable, and worthy. We can look at the Babylonians, the Babylonians as an example. In Genesis 11, we see these ancient entrepreneurs discover the incredible technical innovation of brick making. And with this innovation, the Babylonians could, could make better homes. They could make bigger cities. They could make roads. And it was a game changer for them at that time. But driven by pride, the Babylonians' ambition wasn't to glorify God. They had the wrong motive. Their ambition was to make a name for themselves. Their strategy was to use their innovative, groundbreaking bricks to build a city with a tower that stood higher than any tower so that they could make a name for themselves. So creating the tower wasn't, with their incredible technology wasn't what the issue was. That wasn't bad. Just like working hard for a promotion or creating a business or a piece of art or writing music is also not bad. These creations and promotions can, be, can and do reveal God's character and love and, it's, and they serve others. But when we create or do something for our own motivation, to make a name for ourselves, we're attempting to rob God of the glory that is rightfully His. And so ambition can absolutely be God-honoring as long as we're in a posture where we can pick up our cross, deny ourselves, and follow Jesus. And this flows out of a response of encountering Jesus daily. So are we encountering Jesus daily? And the third and final action to being a goat, a G-O-A-T, is to pick up a towel. And Michael spoke about that earlier. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is in John chapter 13, where the disciples are all together with Jesus in the upper room, having the Passover meal together. And they've just come through the parade of people shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. They're sitting with Jesus. While people are essentially proclaiming Jesus, the Messiah is in Jerusalem. The emotions are electric. And here the disciples have the opportunity to have the last meal with their Messiah, who is now famous and sought after, and surely about to proclaim himself as king. And so as they're eating and celebrating Passover, Jesus is speaking to them, and suddenly Jesus stands up. He takes off his outer robe and he picks up a towel. He wraps that towel around him. And this is the part that I love. In John chapter 13, it says, 
Jesus knew the Father had given him authority over everything and that he had come from God and would return to God. So he got up from the table, took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist and poured water into a basin. I just want to stop there. Here we have Jesus who knew he had authority over everything. And then we see that one word, which in this context is so, so powerful with two letters, so. He got up from the table, wraps a towel around his waist, and pours water into a basin. Then he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel he had around him. This, friends, is the picture of true power and true humility at work. In fact, a good friend and a mentor showed me that this is the gospel in one sentence. Here we have the Son of God, the living water, the Alpha and the Omega, the true vine, the King of glory, the chosen one, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, our rock, our Lord, and he knelt down, took a bowl, picked up a towel, and washed feet. To be the greatest in the kingdom is to inverse the pyramid of power. He said himself, I didn't come to be served, I came to serve others, to give my life as a ransom for others and for their, for their sins. And I think if we can get that right, friends, I think if we can just get that bit right, something will not only happen in our families, but something will happen in our communities, and something will start to shift. And I don't know about you, but when, I'm in, when I am encountering God, when I'm spending time with Him daily, serving others happens naturally. I don't need to think about it. It's who I am. But when I'm not encountering God daily, it's hard. And it takes work. So are we encountering Jesus daily? And I just felt to speak to the leaders in the room this morning as well as online. And by the way, I believe we are all leaders. We're just called to lead in different capacities and for different reasons. So to everyone in the room and to everyone online, the, that right there should be our mission as leaders. Right there, to serve. Not to be served, but to serve. And that is the most powerful, the most transformational, and certainly the most inspirational leadership principle in the world. And if you think of a leader that you respect, I could be confident to say that that leader would be practicing that principle. And if you think of a leader that you don't respect, chances are that they aren't practicing that principle. And here's the thing. You can lead without it. No doubt you can lead without it. But you won't be a leader worth following. As the band gets ready to come up, as I start to close, I just want to invite us. If you are a follower of Christ, I want to remind us that we aren't called to self-promote. We aren't called to live selfish, self-centered lives. But instead, He calls us and invites us to be selfless, denying ourselves, taking the very nature of a servant. In other words, as Jesus' followers, just like Jacques told me, serving is not something that we do. It is an action that reflects who we are. And so how do we become great? We be like a child. We pick up our cross and we pick up a towel. It's so backward to the way that the world does things. But let's be honest, when we see it, you admire it. When you see it, you seek it. And if you have ever had the opportunity to follow someone who models it like I did with Jacques, you respect them 
And I think when it comes to going to work tomorrow or going, to, going home this afternoon, <coughs> excuse me, it comes down to this simple question, to a simple question that sums up these three actions in a simple question. Didn't get it? I said simple question. Sorry. Repeating myself there, I realize. And friends, I think we should be asking ourselves this in every single environment. It's a question that if you're a leader, if you're the boss, if you're parents, if you're the manager, if you're the boss of a franchise, the owner of a franchise, whatever it might be, you probably get asked this question a lot, but like me, you probably don't ask it enough. And in this upside down world that Jesus introduced to this world, it's a question that we should ask, not because of what we do, but we should ask because of who we are. And it's this question, how can I help? Or where can I, how and where can I help? We should ask this question most and we should ask this question often and we should ask this question of the people who least expect it and perhaps may feel like they don't deserve it. And the more that we encounter Jesus, the easier it will be to ask this question. Imagine what would happen in our families. Imagine what would happen in our workplaces, in our communities, in our church. Imagine what would happen in our nation if we fully encountered Jesus daily. Jesus daily. 